0: Thank you for listening to our Celebration Sermon Podcast. Celebration is a worshiping community within Hardewike Ministries. We gather at 9 a.m. in the Red Brick Church Building on the Hardewike campus on the corner of 160th and Lakewood in Holland, Michigan. We invite you to join us in person when you are able. To learn more about our celebration community in Hardewike Ministries, please visit hardewike.com. Now we continue in a sermon series, Act Like Jesus, and this is kind of focused Um, On spiritual disciplines, practices, you do these things in order, like an athlete who trains to then get in the game. The the game is living for Christ. The game is not, um, I've got to be Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. We get in the game to join Jesus as he does his work. This morning, we're looking at a particular topic, single-mindedness, And I want to do something, so I'll give you a little overview before I read. I want to follow what I'd call a thread of the gospel. We'll start in Exodus, actually, the second book of the Bible, and we'll go all the way to Philippians, the epistles, late in the New Testament. And there's a thread. We'll look first at one of the Ten Commandments, the law that God gave His redeemed people. We'll then look at a moment in Israel's history Uh, They had a a king who faced a challenge and he lived out the Ten Commandments, we'll read. And then we'll jump again further in history, several centuries, to Jesus himself where he will speak words from the Sermon on the Mount. And then about 50 years after that, perhaps less, Paul is writing and he'll write to one of the early churches. So, we go from the Ten Commandments to an event in Israel's history actually, Judah, the southern kingdom, then Jesus, and then Paul. And I want you to see this thread as it focuses on single-mindedness. Now, these are the texts I'll be reading. The first is from the Ten Commandments. Let me ask you to stand out of appreciation and respect for the Scripture as you're able. Boy, I say that, Susan, (laughs) and she's navigating a whole foot there. Bless you. Hear the Word of God. I am the Lord your God, he says, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then later there comes from Second Chronicles, the history of God's people, Judah, is under attack. Hear this. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, with some of the Mionites, came to wage war against Jehoshaphat, the king of the people of Judah. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard, and he said, and now he begins a long prayer. I'm going to move to the end of the prayer. For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, O Lord, in this prayer, but our eyes are on you. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and the little ones stood there before the Lord. Then the spirit of the Lord came to Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, as he stood in the assembly. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says to you. Transcendent moment. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Centuries later, Jesus speaks in his Sermon on the Mount. So do not worry, say, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself." Each day has enough trouble of its own. <clears throat> Boy, excuse The microphone. And now from Philippians, the practice of the Apostle Paul. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated if you would. And let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that there are principles built in to your world that reflect you and through which you work. Teach us this tale about the spiritual practice of single-mindedness. Amidst all the challenges and fullness of our life, help us by your grace to be well grounded in who you are and what you're doing. Thank you for the scripture. Holy Spirit, you superintended its writing. You've preserved the text. Now we ask that you complete your work and illumine our hearts and minds with the word that you have for us. Fill us with your grace and hope. We thank you for this day. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name and all of God's people said together, amen. The thread of single-mindedness begins and shows itself right in the Ten Commandments. Now, God says, you will have no other gods but the Lord, no other gods before me. And the Ten Commandments were given as God had made a promise to a family, had fulfilled that promise as he blessed it and it became a nation of tribes. And now, as again, he shows his covenant love By bringing them into a new land, he equips them to live the God-centered life. You need to see the Ten Commandments in that context. They're a blessing of God across the course of his work. And now, he's not giving them, here's ten principles that will make me love you. He's saying, because I have loved you in these so many ways, I will love you again by showing you how to live As a nation, the Ten Commandments, the law in the early books of the Old Testament are God showing his people what it looks like to live a life centered on the Lord. You see all the parts of it. First is identity. These people were unique and distinct. Why? Because of a covenant with the Lord, a relationship, even it's not the perfect word, but a contract. We belong to the Lord. In that way, they prepare a way to understand the people who are redeemed and belong to the Lord Jesus. So, there's an identity. We're set apart by the way and what we worship. And you see in the sacrifices and the plans and the festivals for worship, you see what differentiates Israel from the other nations. They worship the Lord, and the Lord is the best one to teach us how to worship. So, they worship in this way. The other thing that's a part of the national life of Israel that flows out of these 10 commandments is justice. And this unifies the people. Justice, equal justice under the law is what we would refer to it today. It's the same standard for all people. King, priest, farmer, everyone. It's not rich over the poor like other people live, it's not strong over the weak. It begins with, you will have no other gods. And out of that flows everything else in the 10 commandments. It was Martin Luther who, in my experience, first pointed out that in order for you to break one of the later commandments, you had to first violate the first commandment. In order to commit murder and say, I have, control over your life you've got to say that's because I'm taking the place of God before I steal I've got to say I have control over your property not God the revelation of the Old Testament is that there is no other God but the Lord and out of his character flows all these other things this is what it looks like for a nation for a gathering of individuals, for all these families to live life together uh, centered on Yahweh, the Lord, the God who makes Himself known in the Old Testament and finally and supremely in Jesus Christ. So if this is what it means to be a nation centered on the Lord it reminds us and points us back to this truth that humanity was created to be centered on the Lord. Now Not everybody would realize this, but every person I meet, I know that if the scripture is true, that person was created as an image bearer of God to live a life centered on the Lord. Now, not everybody wants that. Not everybody uh, will follow that. But I know in God's intention, every person I meet was created to be centered on the Lord. And so part of the good news is to help people see this broader vision of life that finds at its center the character and the person of the Lord. What's the good news for people in the Middle East? It's that life can be centered on the Lord. That would be a change. What's the good news for people in East Asia? That life can be centered on the Lord. That may be a change. What's the good news for citizens of the United States focused on their consumerism? That life can be centered on the Lord. And that, again, may be a change. But that's the, the picture that the scripture begins with. Life centered on the Lord. And what I want to have you in your mind is this idea of a hub and then spokes that radiate out from it so you get a smooth wheel. Life works, if life was a wheel, it works with life centered on the Lord. The hub is the Lord, and the spokes radiate out from there appropriately and balanced. And when things don't radiate out from that hub, things get out of balance. Let me tell you just a bit of a story of my own life and how things got out of balance. Many of you have heard the story, so I'll go light on the repetition. If this sounds new or you wanna know more, give me a call. I'm happy to give you more detail. But I would say this about my early life. I grew up a pretty run-of-the-mill suburban American kid. My family made sure I was going to school I was able to get involved in sports, we took vacations, I had chores, and doing the usual stuff for us at that point included going to church. So, we'd clean up on Sunday morning, show up, and then hit Krispy Kreme. It was a great routine. I grew to love it. On the outside, pretty much down the middle of the road, living up to expectations, but I now am deeply aware that something was already going wrong with my inner life at the age of 12 or 14 or 16. I discovered that I could be a pretty ruthless football player and that football was a pathway to cheerleaders. And so I began to center my life on football. I would play basketball in preparation for football. You can imagine how that worked. More and more football gave me an identity. It was what set me off from the larger crowd in my middle school and high school. And it's what brought me together with a group of people that I began to share life with. Football was what life was about. At 14, I had figured that out, and I was pursuing it. Little did I know, little did my family know, that what was happening in the eyes of God was that a centered life was beginning to get off-center. The outside of the wheel wasn't changing, but its central point was. The spokes were slowly getting adjusted, Gonna give more to this, give less to that. I'll be centered here, not on that which will happen. Well, the story goes one afternoon, we were playing Myers Park High School. A minute and a half left in the game in August. I'd been beating on a guy who was totally exhausted, and he fell on me. It broke my thigh bone. I was in a cast from my armpits to my toes for three months. I saw no one outside of my immediate family after the first week. They moved on. I was stuck in a cast. Life as I knew it had ended. Now, with no intention of doing it and no awareness of doing it, I had recentered my life on something other than the Lord, and eventually that came crashing down. At the time, I was crushed and heartbroken. I could never play sports again because of the nature of the injury. I had to begin to go and look for how do you get the wheel rolling again? And fortunately, some high school friends who went to a, another church's youth group told me about a God who had laid down his life to rescue me. That the reason I, life wasn't working out for me was because I wasn't centered on him. And so I made a, a decision, prayed a prayer, and the rest of my life has been trying to figure that out. Unbeknownst to me, unaware that my life had gotten off-center, it began to break apart. Because life is meant to be centered on the Lord. Well, that's an experience from my life about having to identify my functional God. And by God, I mean not the one you speak about, but the one who you actually have your heart committed to, who motivates the values, the fears, all the things that drive your decisions and behavior. Your functional God, I want to define in this way, your functional God will be that one thing that if it is lost everything else would go with it. If that one thing was lost, everything else would go with it. Now, there's some things I deeply love. My wife, Mary Lynn, we've shared so much life together. I'm a better man because of her. If she were to get, I don't know, run over by a beer truck this afternoon, probably won't happen, so I'm safe. But if something like that were to happen, it would disrupt my life. But my life would not be over. There are things that are deep and close to us and for them to end is a huge disruption. But when our lives are centered on the Lord, the wheel of life can move forward. God himself can rebuild. God needed to remove football from my life at that point in order to rebuild a life centered on him. And then the challenge of the human heart, you know what happened? Oh, about 20 years after that, I had grown up in Christ, but my heart began to be centered on growing churches. By my early 40s, I was a pastor who'd led three churches, and I rarely speak to this. It's almost embarrassing to think about it. But I'd led three churches to more than triple in size. Some increased six-fold in attendance. And what happened in that, so busy working for the church and for God, that my heart and security had become centered on faithfulness and ministry rather than on God himself. My wheel was back out of round. And God in his mercy, just as he broke my leg, he pulled down that idol. I faced unemployment for the first time in my life and that's another story. I I share these stories so you know I'm a real person. I'm happy to be transparent in my life and I haven't had anyone come forward and say, could you tell everybody the story of my idolatry? So this is the only one I've got. But I share that. You see how I went from one idol over time to another idol? And God in his mercy kept correcting and and bringing me back to center. It's a powerful thing to realize that in the midst of our lives, God wants to bring us back to center and he'll do what it takes. There's a marvelous story and a great line that I want you to go away with today, about King Jehoshaphat. It's in Second Chronicles, which is a very important book. I, I don't know if you read the whole Bible on a regular basis, but there's a whole section of the Bible about a nation who went from a bad king to a bad king to a bad king. Then they changed families to get a different king. but he was bad and a bad king and a bad king it's almost as if god has a word to speak to nations that seem to go from but let's move on i digress here in second chronicles jehoshaphat who was one of eight good kings in the history of two nations boy those odds will kill you jehoshaphat is faced with a very real threat. He's king of the southern nation of Judah. At this point, the unified nation that David had governed has split. Israel has been carried off. The tiny, defenseless, essentially, southern kingdom of Judah has a series of kings. Jehoshaphat faces a very real threat, an enemy that can destroy him. He sees them about to attack, He gathers the people, they go to worship, and he says, we do not have the power to face this challenge. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. In the face of sure destruction, he knew his resources, the size and strength of his military, He knew that many kings would make an alliance. They'd send a daughter off to marry with the Egyptians or this, that, or the other. He knew that they faced real danger. A whole nation and a way of life was threatened. More than that, this nation and their way of life was meant to be God's mission and purpose, that all nations would be blessed. With a clear-eyed honesty, Jehoshaphat can look at the conundrum they are in and he can say, we don't have the power to face this. We don't know what to do, but our eyes will be on you. Where does Jehoshaphat turn? That's an important thing. You wanna see here that he turns to the Lord, not to any of his other resources, not to the ways of the world to fix these problems. That's why I think it's even more important that we consider where did Jehoshaphat not turn? He did not turn to some sort of self-destructive attack of self-defense. He did not turn to alliances that lead to compromise, either intermarry with another nation as leaders or a treaty with Egypt or another nation, we'll pay you if you'll defend us. There was no cynical sort of lesser of two evils, there was no plan B. All of this was laid aside. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Have you ever been in that sort of circumstance? Oh, the world has an answer, but is this God's answer? Oh, my fear has an answer, but what is God's answer? To lay aside all these other voices and to stand before the Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you guide us father now I want to point something out here it's very easy to read this text from a what we call here at Hardaway a closed box perspective we read the story Jehoshaphat doesn't know what to do he asks the Lord the Lord speaks through a prophet and fulfills his word so there's a word from outside to his situation but then we take that and we say okay that's that Inside the box, we have this passage in Scripture. That must be it. I want to tell you, what the Lord is showing us is don't redo the answer. Seek God. Live from the open box that God might speak into your life. And he may do that as you read the Scripture, as you pray, as you share life with others. But let God... Speak to your circumstance. God may call you into radical things, like forgiving your neighbor, like sharing your food with those who don't have a meal, like praying for your enemy. Don't simply take the answers that God gave to other people. Choose from them inside the closed box Let those stories tell you there is a God who leads and guides and speaks, and then with a heart that would listen and obey, learn to discern and and step forward. In the closed box, they would take this word to Judah and make it ours. In the open box, we seek the Lord who speaks to receive guidance for our situation. If that sounds new or scary, let me invite you into something new then. You can trust it because God is good. But what if I make a mistake, Pastor Bill? You'll be forgiven just like I have when I've made mistakes. You'd rather not miss the relationship. Seek him out. Now, God may illuminate a passage in the Bible. He may speak through a gospel-centered friend in a moment of clarity when somehow things just, you see them different. The best of all would be prayer and Bible study with close friends, and you begin to see this emerging thing. See, part of the question as we read about a single-minded heart is we need to ask, are we reading from a closed-box perspective or from an open box? Are we reading in the closed box and having to figure it out ourselves finally? Or is what we read bringing us into relationship with a living God? All this to say it's critically important, it seems to me, that we begin to identify our culture's competing gods. I shared with you my life, how I began to bow the knee to the God of football and then to the God of growing churches rather than being focused single-mindedly on the good news of the gospel. What are the competing gods of our own time? If I were to take one word, it would be self. The cult of self-worship is a term that I find myself using more and more. And as I've studied and looked back over history, this wave has been on its way, friends. You've heard me speak before about, I uh, use the term, moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a good way to begin to think about our own hearts and lives and the idols that may distract us. I'm in I've actually blogged on this and so I'm just going to hit some highlights if you'd like more in the Thursday night email. There's a further link and you can get these. But this term was first developed by a social scientist at the University of North Carolina, Christian Smith. And he and research assistants interviewed a large number of high school students. And he began to put them in scenarios, ask questions, and ask how would you respond to life. And he realized that he kept getting from them a fairly uniform set of working beliefs, a working belief system. And that belief system had about five key principles and it seemed to be consistent. It was very interesting. This is what caught our attention when this first came out. You could take a high school student from a Baptist youth group and a high school student from an Episcopal youth group and a high school student from a Catholic youth group, and a high school student from no youth group. And they had more similarity around these five principles than they had difference. See, beneath the denominational differences, beneath the cultural differences, I might even say, there was emerging a unified belief system And principle number three is that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. To be happy. Now, is being happy a bad thing? No. I've been happy before. I've been happy recently. It was wonderful to take a walk in the sunlight. But is my happiness the central goal of my life? Do you see the difference there? That can be critical. So, if this moralistic therapeutic deism, and, and let me point something out, folks. The, his research was published in 2005. That means the high school students he was interviewing then, then are now in their late 30s or 40s. So, a cohort of American students bound in this working belief system that transcends denomination. Are now in their late 30s or 40s. That's kind of where we are. The cult of self worship, it's kind of swallowed us up, frankly, because I was part of that cult of self worship when I began to find my heart centered on growing churches, that God might be pleased with me. Friends, it's not out there. It's with all of us, and this is what God wants to do, is call us back to single-mindedly focused on Him. I wanna tell you there's a contrast and a contradiction between the cult of self-worship and the gospel of God's grace. I love the Heidelberg Catechism. It begins and expounds the Christian faith out of this question, where do you find comfort? I also like, and my training is in the Westminster Confession, and it's first question in the Catechism is about the primary purpose of humanity. We ask, what is the chief end, the primary purpose for humanity? And the answer to that is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I want to tell you, if you start off centering your life on personal happiness and feeling good about yourself, you will go a different direction. A different fruit will be born in your life. Different decisions you'll make than if you start off with a center to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To do what gives God glory and out of that to find my joy. There's joy in both. But there's a different center. And so the challenge becomes what is my heart centered on? Am I drawn away or am I drawn closer and closer? And as I've said, I wanted to be open about this. I was a church growing pastor with a heart that was getting recentered. One of the reasons we need time in the scripture and together and praying is so that we can navigate the pathways of our heart in community and find the calling to a single-minded love of Jesus and surrender to his Good word, a discernment that lets us separate was that last night's pizza or is that the Holy Spirit? There's practical realities to staying centered on God. We need to face those, but we need to understand you can go one way or you can go another way. You're not going to go both. And so Jesus would say from the Sermon on the Mount, So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all those things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And he's involved in your life, I would add. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well, in good time and in good way, rarely on my schedule. There's the practice of the Apostle Paul. You see this thread? Not that I have already obtained all this, Paul says. See, he's casting a vision that's beyond his own ability because it's a vision that's founded on the grace of the living God. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on. He's writing this from a jail shortly before he's going to be killed. We were created to be centered on God and to live a fruitful, productive, flourishing life out of that. To navigate, as it were, on the wheel of our life based on centered in Christ. Are there times that your life is not quite working out? I was very struck by this video. You know, he's making forward progress, but he'll never go fast it'll always be harder. It's possible to live as if there was a different center, but at some point it begins to break down. You know, I'm not a big follower of contemporary music, um, but each year I love to kind of look over the lyrics of the Grammy Award winners and what'll be performed there, and kind of get a sense of the, the pulse of our time. I'm taken by the, uh, they'll listen to this song from the movie Barbie, what was I made for? Billie Eilish. I think I forgot how to be happy. It's something I'm not, but something I can be. Something I wait for, something I'm made for. Do you hear the yearning in those lyrics? I don't know how to feel, she sings, but I want to try. I don't know how to feel, but someday I might. That's a heart cry who has a sense that there's more to life than I know. I'm yearning for it. Miley Cyrus in her song, Flowers, I can buy myself flowers write my name in the sand, talk to myself for hours, say things you don't understand. I can take myself dancing, I can hold my own hand. I want to tell you, as we were listening to this and Marilyn got in on this, she said, hold your own hand, what fun is that? But all this to work up to the line, yeah, I can love me better, I can love me better than you can. Friends, we're surrounded by a world that's searching, And God, in his mercy, has rescued us with a hope for them. It was Augustine, the great uh, philosopher, came to faith in Christ four centuries after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Augustine, who wrote, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You have made us, O Lord, to be centered on you, and our hearts will never, our lives will never be in balance when we are not. Another way to phrase that is that each of us has a God-sized hole in our heart. And God gave his life to fill that hole. I had a good friend sharing on this idea in a testimony where I was preaching. He'd been trying to fill up the God-sized hole of his life all sorts of ways. And he looked out at the congregation and said, And you know, you wouldn't believe how much cocaine and liquor you can put in a God-sized hole, because I tried. We live in a world that's trying to fill a God-sized hole with self, and it breaks down. We're called to something greater. We have a hope that is greater. Will we love God? Our neighbors enough to let that work in our hearts and to share with them. It's a single-minded life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness. And like Paul, who could look back over his life and see where even with zeal for you, he had missed you. So, In each of our different stories, I suspect there's a way we can do that for ourselves. We have no stones to cast or no judgment to hold over anyone else. It's your grace that has rescued us, that has begun to rebuild that God-sized hole. But we thank you that there is something greater than holding our own hand. There's holding your hand and then discovering that we're joined with others by your grace together as your people. Father, I pray for every searching person that they might be saved from the brokenness of church life and be rescued to the joy of relationship with the living God through Jesus. Help us to be a part of that, even as you do that day by day, increasingly in our own lives. Hear our prayer, for we make it in the name of Jesus and all of God's people sit together, amen. And Amen. Thank you for listening. To learn how to get involved in our celebration community or how to support Hardawike Ministries, please visit us at hardawike.com.